UVA's football players are back on campus with plenty of restrictions to keep them COVID safe, while Virginia Tech still isn't sharing any of its testing data with the public. Two major conferences have opted to play only conference games this season, while JMU is ready to play a totally independent schedule if it means getting in football this fall. We'll talk about all that and much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 15 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and here with me as always is my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. Hello, David. What's up, man? Good to talk to you again after my past week on vacation, took the family to the, the Outer Banks in North Carolina kind of maybe more more than in other years, we really needed a change of scenery and a chance to get away. <laughs> I think it was uh, good for everybody. And it's kind of an, an annual family trip we take. And David, it got me wondering, do, do you guys, do you do an annual trip somewhere? Do you change it up each year? What, what does the Teal family do? We change it up. We have been to the Outer Banks before. Last summer, we did Europe for two weeks with London and Paris. This year, we're not going anywhere. We're not up for for travel. And then next year, we are headed to the Great West oh. to, see, to see some of uh, Utah and Arizona and Colorado and some places out there. That is on kind of the, the bucket list for, so uh, my, my daughter is six, but my son is, is one year old, 13 months old. And we're going to wait for that trip for him to be a little more uh, <laughs> on his own and appreciate it a little more. But uh, I remember growing up with that being a destination I always wanted to visit. My parents actually, I believe it was their honeymoon, they loaded up a little uh, you know, VW Rabbit and did the cross-country drive. And, and the pictures and stories I remember most were um, from the West and Arizona and, and up into Yellowstone. And um, so that will be uh, something for you to look forward to, which people really need right now is things on the horizon to look forward to. Absolutely. We will not be driving across country. <laughs> Let's get that on the record. <laughs> that is probably a smart decision, but uh, I do laugh. I mean, you know, my parents have been uh, married for what? What am I for? So for forty-two years, I believe they've been married, and uh, the fact that they made it cross country and back in that little car probably was a good omen for them and their ability to uh, to make things work. But yeah, our vacation was a little simpler. Drove down to the Outer Banks, um, enjoyed some takeout seafood, some socially distant fun on the beach. Um, and the big key was the house had a pool. So, um, we were able in very hot weather to enjoy that. And I'm back, I'm refreshed, I'm tan, and I'm ready to catch up on everything I missed, which of course these days means a lot more news off the field than, than action on it. And let's start with some guys who are, are getting back to at least a practice field though. And that's the UVA football players. Uh, they're back on campus working out, uh, heading towards the required team activities Back on campus, working out. It's a simple sentence, a simple statement, but not a simple process. Bronco Mendenhall, he held another one of his Zoom sessions with the media. And David, he outlined exactly what goes on on grounds now. And if you would, walk us through, because you and I both wrote about this last week, walk us through a little bit of what the procedure is for these kids who are, who are back on campus. Mike, it's so detailed that there's even a limit 
how many players can get in the same car to drive <laughs> to the football complex. It's four. And you would say, well, that's, that's an awfully big crowd in a car, but they've measured the drive. It's only six minutes. So that doesn't violate the 15 minute rule that, that most protocol outlines. So they, they've got it down to that. They're, you know, they're washing down the weight room after every session because of the limited weight room capacity. They start at 6 a.m., don't finish until 6 p.m. If there's a team picnic or even if players want to eat together, six feet apart, food is prepackaged, you take it, you have to wear your workout gear to the facility from your dormitory because the, the locker room is closed. I mean, it, in one entrance, one exit, temperature checks, it's it's quite, quite the process. Yeah, it's intense. And, you know, some of the other things they've, they've got them in, I think, I believe two dorms that, that are kind of adjacent, but they have very strict rules about other players can't visit you. Friends and family can't visit you in your room. So um, it really is a, a true isolation. And uh, you mentioned the picnic. They did want to get some of that team camaraderie and chemistry going. So they held a picnic, but they maintain their six foot distance rules. So um, I would have loved to have had a drone or an overhead photo of the UVA football picnic with everybody six feet apart. And, um, you know, it, it's a massive undertaking. And and I don't mean to make light when I say this, but it's almost like it's part of this sports worldwide trend toward analytics and Bronco Mendenhall and the people that he, he relies on and advise him. They really have got it down to the CDC recommendation is this. The Virginia State guideline is this. What are things you can do safely that meet those numbers? And assuming the data they're working off is right, uh, you know, Dylan Rankinsmeyer, who I did a story on last week, told me he feels like the Virginia football bubble's the, the safest place to be in Charlottesville. So, David, are they doing everything they should be? Are they doing everything they could be to make this a safe possibility? It certainly appears that way to us on the outside, Mike, though the issue will be, and Bronco Mendenhall, I thought, framed this particularly well. This comes down to personal choice. Do you adhere to the protocol? Are you committed enough to the team concept here? Do you have the empathy and the compassion literally for your fellow man to follow all this and to not risk yourself or others in terms of infection. And Bronco can't manage that. His assistants can't manage that. They can put all these guidelines in place, but it's up to the young men and, and in other sports, young women as well to follow. And that will in some degree to some degree determine the success yeah, external sure. factors will be the ultimate decider here yeah i think it's to gonna, your, yeah go ahead 
to, to your point, I think it's a, you know, if you take care of business as the UVA football program, it doesn't guarantee you anything. Um, and I think that's maybe part of the the challenge here because you're right. And, you know, I remember when you spoke to the, the Wake Forest uh, doctor who was responsible for kind of representing Wake Forest on the committees and, and forging a lot of their policy. And the quote was something to the effect of, you know, it only takes one, one case, one positive test, one person making a mistake to kind of blow this up. Uh, so to your point there, it's even if you're 99.9% compliant, it, it only takes uh, one, one person slipping up to, to really derail this whole project. Well, and, and, and not only that, Mike, outside forces, if rates continue to surge, if hospitals in certain parts of the country continue to operate at or near capacity, especially in the ICUs, all of college football, you're not going to be able to do it. It's, it's just, and the testing infrastructure has to improve. I listened to an NCAA roundtable Friday night that included Shane Lyons, who's the West Virginia AD and the chairman of the Division One Football Oversight Committee, and Dr. Brian Hainline, who's the NCAA's chief medical officer. And Dr. Hainline was especially disappointed in testing infrastructure because CDC and, and the NCAA is recommending that athletes be tested 72 hours before competition. Well, in many parts of the country, schools can't get test results back that quickly. So that in and of itself would blow up the entire operation. And oh, by the way, the NCAA put out COVID-19 suggested protocol on Thursday, and that includes, really to no one's surprise, a mandatory 14-day quarantine for anyone who's been in close contact with someone who tests positive for the virus. Well, guess what the CDC defines close contact with or as? Touching. <laughs> if you so much as have touched someone with COVID, and by the way, there's a lot of touching in football, you're, you're to be quarantined for 14 days. This, I mean, this goes back to what I feel like you and I have talked about for, for months now. Even yeah. if they find a way to get players back on the field, and even if they find a way to transport and all the things that seem to us too daunting to overcome. If they find a way past all of that, one positive test from a player in a game would, yeah. you know, by those standards, essentially shut down two programs for two weeks. It, it, and and what so kind it, of a season are you going to have? Right. Even if you take two weeks off and come back, you know, that's two weeks of, of not practicing, of not playing. What's left? It just... I don't know. Again, I, we hate to be negative, but it does seem to, to keep coming back to what are you going to be left with uh, if you're even able to do this? And But for right now, that's all they have, right, David? They, for right now, it's what can you do to get ready? And I think one of the people in the most interesting position in all of this um, on college campuses are these strength and conditioning coaches. And, you know, I spoke with Sean Griswold, the UVA strength coach last week about the challenge of his job, and you mentioned the hours, starting at six, going till six at night, trying to get these groups in of six kids at a time, uh, trying to get them the kind of work that they need to get done, and trying to find that energy in a weight room. And we've all seen the videos on Instagram and on Twitter, a guy's trying to squat, you know, his personal best, and everybody in the room is around him screaming and cheering him on and getting that energy. And now you're asking kids to give the same effort 
but there's only five other dudes in the room, it's quite a challenge for him. Mike, not only are there only five other dudes in the room, everybody's wearing a mask. <laughs> no, I mean, even the, guy trying, even the guy trying to squat or bench his personal best is wearing a mask. <laughs> and, and, and you mentioned Bronco Mendenhall's adherence to, to metrics. Well, how do you as a strength and conditioning staff a lot for that because you're not going to be able to breathe as well with a mask on. Therefore, it seems to me at least you couldn't lift as much. So are you? do you say to yourself, gosh, my guy's gotten weaker? Or so 350 pounds six months ago is the equivalent now of, of what? It's how they're measuring all this is beyond me. It is a fascinating area of getting ready for football. And, you know, Sean mentioned, Coach Griswold mentioned, hey, you know, these guys usually get a week or so off, right, in May, and then they come back and it's back to work. And now they've been off for months. And, you know, he he praised the players. He said they all did their work. They all did what they could to stay in shape. But that meant something different for everybody. Um, I mentioned Dylan Rankinsmeyer and he did a lot of, for his cardio, he did a lot of uh, mountain hikes in Colorado, even where he lives, even up a, a glacier. Uh, he took a, a glacier hike uh, past a glacial lake and, you know, but everybody had different things available to them. And now for Griswold, it's okay. They're all back. They're all at different points. They all need to get to kind of the same point. How do you do it? To me, it sounded daunting. I will say to his credit, you know, he, he told me, number one, it's a good problem to have because the part of his job he loves the best is working with the kids. So, you know, he, he said to me, you know, it's it's what we love to do to have the kids back training, that interaction with them. It's just so much fun to see them and, and have them back. And, you know, that's what stood out to him. And, and then the challenge. And, and he said that, you know, Bronco Mendenhall's instruction to him and his staff was basically, hey, this season is about who can figure it out the fastest and do it the safest. And, you know, to, to his credit, I think Griswold and, and Bronco Mendenhall, they've, if nothing else, they have a plan that they believe can accomplish that. And I guess we'll have to sit back and see where that goes. Well, and even if they have the opportunity to implement it, that's the big question. And that brings us to our take it or leave it this week. Thank you, Mike. UVA's Dylan Reikensmeyer called the Virginia football bubble the safest place to be in Charlottesville. Now, knowing the protocols that they have in place, take it or leave it. David. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to say Barber's house is probably the safest place in Charlottesville because I, I don't think Mike is interacting with a bunch or with a bunch of other guys in the weight room and, and, and living with other people in dorms. But I, I think in terms of athletes, the, the UVA, and, and I think this holds true across the country and across the Commonwealth. These schools are putting into place the absolute safest protocols that they can conceive of. I, I talked to Jeff Jones, the basketball coach at Old Dominion, earlier today, and he was outlining all the protocols that they have. They only have four guys in, in the weight room or four guys in the training room at one time. And 
It's just, they even have it down as to who is allowed to wash your clothes. I mean, (laughs) it's amazing the hoops that everyone is jumping through, but it's necessary. So Mike, from the barber bubble in Charlottesville, (laughs) what's your take? Yeah, I'm going to leave it. And and the the barber bubble was probably a little safer before we went to the beach for the week, although we did everything right down there. You know, I, I take it in the sense that if you're going to bring athletes together, I think UVA is doing everything right. I think it's a smart approach to what they're trying to do. I just come back to, and the reason I leave it, the only way to be safe if you're not sick is to keep yourself not sick by interacting with no one and you know ha- having no risk. And um, you can only control that as an individual. And it goes back to what David was saying about how it would only take one person, and it's about personal responsibility the safest place to be, if you're concerned, is on your own, in your home, where you control your environment, where if there's a mistake made, you're the one that made it. Uh, so I, I have to leave it because there's no place there's no place like home, uh, I think, when it comes to keeping yourself safe in these unusual times. Now, another big question is, Virginia's got their kids back, right? They're in the weight room. We just talked about all the procedures, everything they're doing. What exactly are they preparing for? Because if there is a fall season, we don't exactly know what it's going to look like. David, you had a story this week about the kickoff game and and the possibilities of, of what could be changing there. We've seen conferences, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 already announced they're only going to play conference games this season uh, if there is a season. So, David, right now as we sit here and it's Monday afternoon, what what are the Cavaliers, the Hokies, athletes all over the state, football players, what are they preparing for? I wish I knew, (laughs) but if there is, and you know, it's a massive if Mike of a fall season, there are several options out there for the ACC. The conference could go league only games and follow the lead of the big 10 and the PAC 12. That is not from what I understand the preferred way forward. At the very least, I believe a majority of the ACC would like to preserve the four season-ending rivals, rivalries, excuse me, between the SEC and the ACC, that being Florida, Florida State, Clemson, South Carolina, Georgia, Georgia Tech, and Louisville, Kentucky. Now, there's also the option, you know, is it 12 games? Is it 10? Is it eight? And how much do you involve Notre Dame, which is an independent in football, of course, but a partial or a member for all other sports of the ACC? One of the more intriguing possibilities to me is including Notre Dame, dividing into three pods of five teams. You would play each of the other four teams in your pod twice each, and there would be eight games just at the start, and then you'd figure out the rest of the schedule incrementally. And those pods would be very much geographic. And you would essentially, with with some exceptions, of course, because Miami and Boston College are very much isolated a little little bit, you'd turn it into a bus league and you'd save all that money that you would normally spend on charters. Yeah, that's a fascinating proposal because – we always think of college football with its contracts and its money 
as being so rigid, right? Anytime anything comes up, oh, you can't do that. You're in a contract. You can't do that. You got this TV deal. And now we see that when when the question is playing or not playing, how many options are actually on the table? And you just mentioned Notre Dame, David, and you wrote about this as well. Um, People can find it on richmond.com. But I heard a lot of when the talk of conference-only games first came out, I heard a lot of, hey, the ACC should pressure Notre Dame (laughs) into becoming a full member with football because where else are they going to go? What else are they going to do? I personally thought, like, what a terrible way to approach business with someone who, to my opinion, has been a good partner uh, and brings a tremendous amount of value. David, how does the ACC view that relationship with Notre Dame? And is this a leverage situation or is this a partnership situation? I think the ACC, Mike, would be amazingly foolish to approach it as a strong arm leverage situation. As you mentioned, Notre Dame has been an outstanding partner. The Fighting Irish receive a pittance of ACC revenue compared to the full-time members, about 20%. And they more than pay their way. Now, would Notre Dame ever even consider giving up football independence? Not under these circumstances, because money is not the reason Notre Dame is a football independent. Notre Dame would make more money as a full-time member of the ACC than it does right now as an independent and with its own TV deal with NBC. But for as long as there has been college football, this has been a national school with a national and international student body. And it has, it has branded as football has helped brand the institution. They want to play on the West Coast. They want to play on the East Coast. And that's what an independent schedule allows them to do. Yeah. And, and I think that's the genius of the agreement they have is it feels to me like everybody gets the best of both worlds. The ACC gets the power of the Notre Dame name. They get that draw. Um, you know, they get the enhanced TV when they have Notre Dame rights. And, and I know Notre Dame, most of their games uh, do fall under that NBC contract. They get some of that uh, prestige of, of having Notre Dame on so many of your schedules, but they don't have to pay out the full amount at the end. And then if you're Notre Dame, exactly what you said, you, you get the stability of conference scheduling. You get those built-in games. So you're not trying to put together 12 games every year, but you've got the freedom to go in and maintain some of the traditional rivalries that Notre Dame has always had. Certainly USC jumps to mind and things like that. And you get to play geographically all over and and spread that brand. So, yeah, I I mean, I agree to me, uh, things are good now. And and what you do now isn't about leverage. It's about working together with a partner to uh, help everybody get through. And I think including Notre Dame, whether it's the pod system you were just talking about or however they go about it, uh, including Notre Dame to me, just makes sense for both sides. Mike, let me ask you a question. When's the last – how many football games have you done at Duke over the okay. years? Half a dozen mean, more than that? Probably more than that, one or two a year. Okay. How many of those games were remotely close to a sellout? Oh, gosh. Were, were any? I'm trying to think if no. any of them were. <laughs> no, of course they weren't. Notre Dame sold out Wallace Wade Stadium. Oh, yeah. Notre Dame has sold out Boston College. 
Notre Dame has sold out Syracuse. Notre Dame has sold out Lane Stadium, Scott Stadium, Florida State, Clemson. When the Fighting Irish come to town, ACC schools cash in. And that's a great point. And I know that there's fans out there listening to you say that who say, well, I hate it because it's all Notre Dame fans. But the counterpoint of that is the guy sitting in the accounting office at your ACC college, he doesn't care what color jersey the fan was wearing when he bought the ticket, bought the concessions, paid for his parking. Uh, He could have been wearing Notre Dame with a green wig and been dressed as a full leprechaun. They're still going to cash that check in. Yes. And... Let's be frank here. A lot of fan resentment about Notre Dame's arrangement with the ACC is envy. They're Notre Dame. You're not. You're just going to have to come to grips with it. I'm sorry. And not exactly what people want to hear around the ACC, but it's true. And it it probably will lead to that disparity or at least that feeling uh, forever, no matter what kind of agreements and arrangements they come up with. And you know, Notre Dame doesn't have any trouble putting together an independent schedule. Just to your point, people want the Irish on the schedule. They certainly want the Irish in their stadiums. And now that's a challenge that another school with maybe locally a strong brand, but not nationally the same level, James Madison. The CAA has said no football games this fall. JMU said, hey, we're going to try to pursue an independent schedule. Now, I don't know that they're going to have the same scheduling success as Notre Dame, but What can JMU accomplish, and and do you think this makes sense? At the end of the day, Mike, I think it's going to be a moot point because I think so many – what JMU wants to avoid is checking out on fall football before the NCAA does. The NCAA doesn't control the FBS programs because it doesn't run the college football playoff or the bowls. But the NCAA does run the FCS playoffs. And to date, the NCAA has not canceled or postponed those playoffs for 2020. So JMU wants to remain viable there because obviously you're talking about a national power here that is accustomed to playoff bids and competing for national championships. So I understand what the Dukes are doing, but I think at day's end, enough FCS leagues are going to bow out of fall football that the NCAA will really have no other option than to postpone or cancel the FCS playoffs, at which point I think JMU follows suit. So do you see any scenario where JMU puts together 12 games of uh, non-league games, whether they're against FCS or, or loading up maybe with FBS teams that are looking to fill holes in their schedule. Do you see any chance that they go through and maybe play it as sort of a big cash grab? Like, hey, instead of playing one uh, ACC team or instead of playing one Power 5 team, you play three or four and, and make that money. Any Any possibility that they go that route? I don't think they could get that many ACC teams to play them. Especially not what we just talked about with the pods and the the shift that we anticipate will come in the ACC schedule. Yeah. Although there could be a payoff down the line if if you agree to some contracts with teams and and you work in there, hey, if the game doesn't happen, you still owe us a game in the next five or eight years. So maybe they're maybe they're trying to flush out their future schedules that way by being agreeable and available right now and, and getting something in writing for the future. Who knows? 
Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a real long shot, Mike. And 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 just if I can, and and not to regress, just back to Notre Dame, mm-hmm. real quickly. People have often asked me, well, what would it take for Notre Dame to join the ACC for football? I think it would have to be one of two things: being uh, bypassed for the playoff in a year where they were convinced that they should be in because they had not in the, the, the committee saying, but you didn't have a conference championship on your resume and you didn't have a 13th data point as all the other candidates and or NBC losing interest in extending the, the television deal. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people have pointed that TV deal as sort of the, the anchor of the whole thing, but you're, you're probably right with the cachet of the playoff and that being the goal that um, at the point at which Notre Dame football didn't think it had a fair shot at the playoffs mm-hmm. coming out of independent status. Yeah. I guess that would be a moment that, that I could see a shift there. Yes, I agree. Well, you got UVA and ODU and I don't know that either of them this year would be in the hunt for a college football playoff if, if we get to that point. Uh, but they're two of the Commonwealth's three FBS football programs and something they have in common. Both of them have publicly announced their COVID testing data, uh, as has JMU, the, the FCS powerhouse we were just talking about. Virginia Tech has not, and apparently they have no plans to. So while other schools are saying we've tested this number of athletes and staff, we have this many positives back. Uh, UVA even saying we had a couple more who were quarantined. Virginia Tech doesn't want to be open with their data. So, David, bluntly, let's start there with should they be? Should should they be open with their data like the other schools, or do you understand where they're coming from? Well, a couple things, Mike. Let's not forget there's a fourth FBS program in the state, and that's Liberty. Which I and often it, do forget. It, well, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as an FBS independent, you know, it it is easy to sometimes think of the Flames back in their FCS days. And I have not heard testing results from them either. And, hey, let's be completely transparent here. You and I are reporters. We want as much information as we can get our grubby little paws on. Because we think it's interesting, we believe, I think correctly, that the public would find these numbers interesting and kind of give them a glimpse as to what the each school is, is dealing with as it's trying to, to put together a, a season. But or nationally, it, it really seems like there's almost a 50-50 split among schools as to whether they should be, be sharing this data. You know, I've, I've seen numbers from Clemson. I've seen numbers from Oklahoma. Now, North Carolina did reveal that it had paused workouts because of some positive tests, but the Tar Heels are not real, revealing exact numbers. So would I like Virginia Tech to pony up with some more information? Absolutely. If I were in there, I'd I'd need to consult with some medical professionals and coaches and and get a lot of input before I made that decision. So, you know, I look at what UVA Athletic Director Carla Williams said on this subject. UVA 
who has not made her available to us recently, but they did put out a, a in-house Q and a, uh, that was pretty informative. It, it was, mm-hmm. you know, deep. It wasn't just sort of propaganda fluff. It was real questions and real answers. And she said, and I'm quoting here, quote, we just think it's in the best interest of public health to have the information. Having information is better than not having information, which end quote to me sounds pretty simple and, and, and makes sense. The more information that is out there now, Virginia tech, their counterpoint. And I heard from their spokesman today was, you know, Hey, we're sharing the data with officials. We're sharing the data with public health people. We're sharing yeah. the data with the people who need to have it to make decisions. We're just not sharing it publicly, which I think to your point is, is you know, within their rights and, and we don't like it certainly as reporters. And I personally agree with the UVA and the ODU take, which is, the more information the public has, that helps people make decisions about what they want to do with their families and, and with their weekends. And you know, if we get to a situation where there are games, or even if it's just a data point for should you take your family on a vacation or not, to me, the we're all in this together kind of thing tells me we should all have this information. But um, like you said, you know, nationally, it, it seems to be split. Yeah. And to Virginia Tech's counter that, hey, we're sharing this with public health officials. Well, let's also be clear, they have no choice. <laughs> no, that's, you know, yeah. that's the law. You, you can't just not share that information with your local and, and, and state health officials. Well, and that topic is, is this week's Who You Got? Thank you, Mike. The football programs at UVA and Old Dominion have made their COVID-19 tests public. Virginia Tech and so far Liberty have not. Who you got? Who's doing it the right way? Let's start with Mike. Yeah, I mean, we were just hammering at this, but I think the ones who are making the information public, I think that's what's in everybody's best interest right now. And, you know, I go back to that Carla Williams quote, but more information is better and another data point is better. And, um, and I think, you know, you've got fans right now kind of, and, and I know this isn't the number one concern, but you have fans that are sort of twisting a little bit. Should they buy their season tickets? Should they not? Um, is there going to be a season? Is there not? Should they consider tailgating? Should they not? Traveling? Should they not? And I, I think it would just make everybody in a tense situation feel a little bit better to have all the information available. And, and that's why I think they ought to do it that way. Mike, I'm going to I'm going to take it as well, and I'm going to go one step further in that I would like because I think what schools are worried about is if they just throw the numbers out there that there won't be any context. Well, give us some context. Allow one of your medical people to either answer some questions, not about individual cases, but just about the process as a whole, or issue a written statement that says, okay, here are our numbers and here is how we interpret them and what they mean. I think that would really be informative to the to the public and beneficial. Yeah, I think that's a great point because you hear that all the times. Well, you, you guys don't know the whole story or you guys don't have the full context. Well, give it to us, give it to us and we'll take it to the readers and the fans because that's kind of the media's role in all of this is to, to take all of this information that's scattered all over and, and present it to people so that they are informed and they have a chance to make their own decisions. And 
It is a lot. It's a lot, certainly. Um, and maybe sharing information with the media isn't the number one priority, certainly, for any of these schools. But um, I do appreciate the ones that are doing it, in my opinion, quote unquote, the right way. And another thing that, that schools share, again, they don't have any choice here because these are <laughs> often uh, tax forms and things of that nature. But David, you had a chance to write a little bit about the ACC's finances, uh, their latest disclosure. Before we wrap up today, I want to talk a little bit about that. What what stood out from that information to you? Well, j- just to, to, to frame it for our legion of listeners, yes. it is that the, the tax filings for conferences lag a year behind because they're nonprofits, and that's just the way the IRS cycle works. So these numbers are for 2018-19. And for that fiscal year, ACC revenue was down 2% to $455.4 million. But there is a reason that the revenue declined slightly And that's because once every three years, the way the college football playoff semifinal rotation works, the Orange Bowl hosts a semifinal. Well, the Orange Bowl is the ACC's contract bowl. So in that year, the ACC loses that guaranteed $25 million payout. Therefore, revenue dips. Now, the last time it happened, Revenue fell by 7.5%. So the 2% decline this go-around was actually much better, and that was because, conversely, the ACC's media revenue, media rights, were on a serious uptick. And, oh, by the way, since Notre Dame joined the league, ACC media rights have increased by 98%. Now, is that another example of where the Irish are worth it? Yeah, not all Notre Dame. Obviously, but certainly a big part. Now, where where the ACC still has some serious work to do is the average distribution to its full-time members for that fiscal year was $28.8 million. Big 10, 55.6. SEC, 45.3. Pac-12, 32.2. And Big 12 approaching 40 million. So the ACC is clearly lagging when it comes to per school distributions. And that's where it is really hoping that the ACC network can make a difference. Yeah, I was going to point out that, that those numbers are pre-television network, correct? Yes. So that that is sort of the plan in place. And, you know, it'll be interesting because to your point about the Orange Bowl, and so you would say, well, next year you'll see, um, you know, the bounce back, but who knows what we're going to see next year with some of the revenue loss and some of the other things that are, um, it's going to be a very interesting year next year. Um, and I guess the year after that, actually, <laughs> to see yeah. some of the tax filings for what the impact of COVID was, because, you know, we've read some stories, but I still don't think we, we know the full scope of financially the impact of what's happening right now. Oh, no, and and we won't, Mike, for a while because the 2019-20 fiscal year ended June 30. And I think most conferences were still able to be fairly whole. I mean, John Swafford told me that he expected per school distributions to be about 98% of what the league had projected internally. And that included revenue from the ACC network. 
the fascinating tax returns will be for 2020-21 fiscal when we when we get just a unvarnished look at the impact of the pandemic and you know that's obviously the great unknown here because we still don't know if and when football will be played. So maybe about two years, you should all tune back in to hear yes. that episode of Teal and Barber when we break down those tax returns. David's story uh, on that is up at richmond.com. I wanted to quickly hit a story I have up right now on an athlete that I think you and I both just really enjoyed covering when he was with the Hokies, and that's Sam Rogers, a local Richmond kid who uh, started at Hanover High School, started at Virginia Tech, worked his way up from being a, a walk-on. He's back in Richmond. He's now the head coach in Hanover, and he's running a morning workout program for adults. Um, he gets them up at five in the morning, and he puts them through pretty rigorous <laughs> physical exercise to kind of get their day going. Uh, he calls it the Easy Day Program. He, he named it after uh, his high school strength coach who would say to him before every workout, you know, he'd say, coach, what kind of a day do we have? And he'd say, don't worry, Sam, easy day. And <laughs> Sam said, of course, those workouts were anything but easy. Uh, he sort of put this program together as an homage, if you will, to to the work that they put in back then. And I thought, David, what was interesting about Sam and, and his approach here, it's very team-based and very community-based, which if you think about his playing career at Tech, it makes sense, right? It lines up with the guy we saw. A lot of the drills are you're going to do your fastest on your end. And then, you know, with the social distancing, you have a partner across the field and then he's going to complete his leg, if you will, almost like a relay. So you're working together, you're pulling each other. It's not just you working out, it's building this sense of community. And I mean, David, I'm right, right? When you covered Sam Rogers, I mean, he was kind of the ultimate team guy. Well, not only was he that, Mike, he was also the ultimate enthusiasm guy. If if there's one cat you can envision being up at 5 a.m. and liking it and, and, and being ready to work out, it's probably Sam Rogers. I mean, he was he was cut out for this business. And oh, by the way, he's got more time to devote to it. Now that there is no high school football in the Commonwealth this upcoming fall. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, I talked to one of the guys who uh, is in the workout class. He actually is a or was a former Virginia Tech season ticket holder. He was a fan in the stands watching Sam play. And, uh, you know, he told me that, you know, as a fan, you could see kind of that energy and that enthusiasm uh, from Sam Rogers. And uh, I'm looking for the quote here, but he says of the workouts, uh, you know, from what I see, it's extended way beyond his football career. Every morning he's pumped up, motivated, ready to go, ready to go. You walk in, he's got a smile on his face, ready to tackle the world and get the best out of everybody. And I think that's what we saw from Sam Rogers during his tech career. I remember Shane Beamer talking about coming into his office early in the morning to get started and kind of pulling the blinds and looking out the window. And there was Sam Rogers already on the practice field, running laps and, and doing conditioning work. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, sometimes you hear about what a kid's doing in his life after football and you think to yourself, huh, that's interesting. I didn't see that coming. And sometimes like with Sam Rogers yeah. coaching high school football and, and running uh, early morning workouts, you're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Perfect career choice. 
Absolutely. Well, hopefully we made a, a perfect career choice as sports writers and doing this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's our show for this week. So thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts. Just find the RTD podcast channel. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers, including a sports-only option, right now at richmond.com. We certainly appreciate that support. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join again in two weeks. Music.